Now, I don't watch American Idol, but I've heard of it. I know it's a show that kind of spotlights uh, singers. And up until about 2018, that time frame, American Idol would even bring on people who couldn't sing. Maybe you watched it and you remember a few of those. They were just like the really bad auditions that the judges were like, most of the time the camera was on the judges and they're like hiding their eyes and they're laughing or holding their ears or something like that. And eventually, I think that practice ended. I don't know if they started it back, but they ended because they decided it was a bad idea to bring people on who really couldn't sing and then laugh at them for not being able to sing. But the point of that is, when the people who couldn't sing came onto the show, they probably thought they could actually sing okay. I, I don't think there were too many people who knew they couldn't sing and did it anyway. Maybe a few. Like most normal people that know they don't sing very well don't want to sing, right? I mean, that's, that's reality. So the sad reality is there are people who went on national TV to sing, to do some kind of audition who were awful. But they didn't know they were awful. That's a, it, and it's really, it's really easy. If we just take a step back, it's really easy to have an inflated view of ourselves, our talents, our voices, our looks, or our abilities. And that's why the Bible tells us to, to, to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think so as to have sound thinking. That's from Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Well, the disciples of Jesus learned this lesson the hard way. Um, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, Jesus tried to give his disciples a reality check. We read through it in Matthew 26. He was telling them that all of them were going to abandon him. All of them would be scattered. It was, a, it was really a fulfillment of prophecy. Strike the shepherd and the disciples will flee. The, the, the sheep will scatter but they they thought they would be faithful to them. Just listen to Jesus' words once again. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But Jesus didn't end his statement there. He said, But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So Jesus was not only predicting that all of the disciples would be disloyal to him and they would flee from him, but he was also predicting that he was going to forgive them for that and that he was going to restore them from that and that they would still be his apostles. But they missed that rich promise because they had an inflated opinion of themselves. You, you know the story. We read, read it through it. Uh, Peter and the disciples would have done well just to shut their mouths. And reflected on the sobering words that Jesus had just given them. And said, Lord, we don't see that, but we trust your word. I don't see my, myself failing, but I trust you. You've always taught us truth. But I'm thankful that, that you've promised to restore us. I'm thankful that you've promised to be raised from the dead and that we'll see you and still be your disciples even though we were not faithful. 
But that's not what they did. With Peter as their spokesman, they said this, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Notice all those, that great emphasis of Peter, right? Very bold, uh, sometimes not very bright. Not saying he was stupid, I'm just saying he wasn't listening to Jesus and that's not very smart. Even though all may fall away from you, I never will. Essentially, Peter not only made a bold claim in, that contradicts Jesus, he was essentially saying, Jesus, you're wrong. You're wrong. You don't know me. You don't know me. You know, what, who do you think, who did Peter think that he was? What, what, what a distorted view that he had of himself. But Jesus told Peter that actually not only would Peter flee like all the other disciples, but something worse is going to happen. Peter was going to deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times, three times. Jesus said, truly, I say to you that this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. What a terribly sobering event when that actually occurs. Jesus was right. Peter was wrong. And not only did Peter deny Christ, deny knowing Christ, the, the, the third time, the very last time, he denied Jesus with curses. With curses. Sobering. Sobering reality. And yet, Peter wouldn't listen. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the other disciples said the same thing too. But we know what happens. Later on in Matthew chapter 26, Peter denies Jesus. Verse 74 says this, then Peter began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And then the Lord's providence, a rooster crowed. And it pierced Peter to the heart. Put yourselves in their shoes. You've just cursed and denied knowing Christ. The rooster crows. You look up and you see Jesus looking at you. I have argued in the past and I'll argue in the future that I think Peter's sin was worse than Judas's sin of betrayal. The difference between Judas, Iscariot, and Peter is that in Judas's sin, when he was convicted, he ran away from Christ. When Peter eventually saw the risen Christ again, Peter ran to Christ. That's still really the only difference between us. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all not been faithful to Christ. It's the, the issue is, where are you going to flee when the piercing of sin comes? Do you flee away from Christ? Or do you flee to Christ? 
Now, this morning, I want us to think about the perspective of the disciples, because in many ways, you and I are just like them. We didn't have the, we didn't have the privilege of necessarily being with Christ physically, but we have the rich word of God. So we can know much, look at the, the full scope of Scripture and understand much about the Lord. Like the disciples, we have inflated views of ourselves about how spiritually mature that we are. You may think that you are healthy and a healthy and loyal disciple, a good Christian, if you want to put it in those terms. But is that the reality? This morning, we're going to do a little discipleship health check. And I just want you to ask yourself this question. What kind of disciple are you? And we're going to look at some negative disciples, some characteristics of negative disciples and also positive. And this is not an exhaustive list. The list I came up with was uh, far too long for the time that we have this morning. Uh, so you'll say, well, why didn't you think of that one? Well, I may have. We didn't have time to cover it. But I want you to, to think about these characteristics, about yourself as we go through these characteristics. The first disciple we're going to look at is the confused disciple. The confused disciple. You're a confused disciple if you consider yourself to be a Christian, but do not understand the biblical call of discipleship, you might say, disciple, what? Every time I write the word disciple or discipling, the word processor always wants to correct it and make it discipline. Well, it's related, but it's not the same word. Mm -hmm. um, discipleship involves discipline, but it's, but it's different, right? Um, there are lots of people in this category of a confused disciple. If you're a confused disciple, you probably don't think of yourself as actually a disciple. Uh, you think of yourself as a Christian, but not necessarily. You would never use the word disciple of yourself, or very rarely. Um, you're not too sure about the label disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple anyway? Um, must you be a disciple to be a Christian? Can't you be a Christian without being a disciple? Um, the fact that people would claim to be Christians without also claiming to be a disciple shows you that they are confused. It demonstrates their confusion. And there are a lot of people like that today. The followers of Jesus Christ were called disciples long before they were called Christians. Just reflect upon that fact. They were called disciples long before they were called Christians. Jesus chose 12 men to, to spend time with him and, and that he would train them to be the apostles. What were they called before they were called apostles? His what? Disciples. His disciples. Eleven of these men would be appointed as apostles. So Judas Iscariot uh, falling away. But these were Jesus' disciples. The twelve disciples is what we know them as. What is a disciple? Simply stated, a disciple is someone who follows another. And that, that word follow can mean physical following, but it also implies a, a metaphorical use of the word following, meaning you're learning from that person. That, that person is your mentor. That person is your teacher. To put it in Jewish language, that person is your rabbi. He's your teacher. He's the one you're going to learn from. So 
we, we see a bit of this from, from a verse in, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 21, that show us this basic definition. It, it, let me just read that to you. Matthew 8, beginning at verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Again, a bold claim, right? An inflated disciple or a, a disciple who has a inflated, inflated opinion of himself. Right? Then a, that scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes, the birds have the, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So in other words, he's saying, yeah, you really want to follow me? Right? I, don't, I don't have like an estate that you can come and be comfortable on. Right? Come follow me. Suffer the life of road ministry, is what Jesus was saying. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me to, go, to first go and bury my father. Notice these are called disciples. Right? But Jesus said to him, um, follow me and allow the, the dead to bury the dead. In other words, the, the spiritually dead can bury the physically dead. You follow me. So a true disciple follows Christ. That's a basic, simple definition. A disciple follows Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? Originally, it meant to follow him physically. They went where he went. They listened to what he taught. Now, for us today, to follow Christ means to have faith and trust in him and be reading his word, learning from him so that you learn what he instructs us. Um, the term disciple is really just a, the translation of a Greek word uh, that means one who engages in learning through instruction from another. You're learning from that person. Uh, a disciple is a pupil. A disciple is an apprentice. And in its generic sense, many teachers had disciples. But Jesus is not just a generic teacher. And he's not just a prophet or just a good man. He is the son of God. He's the lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. And he is the word of life who gives forgiveness of sins and eternal life to those who believe in him. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, for salvation and eternal life, then you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. The, the question is, are you, what kind of disciple are you? you know, just like we could say, turn this around and, and think about um, theology, which is a study of God. And, and I could ask you, are you a theologian? And you might think, well, no, I'm not a theologian. Um, you might be someone who cuts hair or someone who teaches school or someone who works at computers. Um, but in essence, you really are. If you're a Christian, you really are a theologian. Right? Because God's called you to that, to study who he is. So the question isn't whether you are a theologian. The question is, what type of theologian are you? Are you, are you faithful, reliable, and good in your understanding? Or are you being unfaithful? Same too, we could use this analogy with discipleship. If you're a follower of Christ, you are a disciple. It's just a matter of what type of disciple you are. Um, to be a disciple of Jesus means to be one who is constantly associated with Jesus. So Jesus said that it is enough for a disciple that he becomes like his teacher. So the goal of discipleship is to become like your, the one that you are following. And so that's really the ultimate goal of discipleship is that we would become like Jesus Christ. That's what we're trying to do. 
And we couldn't do it in our own strength because that's not possible. But we're relying upon God's help through his Holy Spirit to help us with that. So what kind of disciple doesn't follow this teaching? One who's not really a disciple or one who's confused. But we have people today who claim to be Christians who don't have the foggiest idea what discipleship means. The word disciple is important because it helps you understand what you are to do as a Christian. Now, the term Christian is good and it's right. It was was used in Antioch at first. Uh, Acts 11.26 says, And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And then after the book of Acts, the the apostles and the Holy Spirit really pick up the word Christian and and talk about the saints. They use the word saints, use the word believers, use the word uh, Christians, and the word disciple kind of passes off the scene. But but the same token, that word disciple helps us to understand what it is we're to do as Christians. So if you're a Christian, you must think of yourself first as a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Again, people today are so used to calling themselves Christians and not really understanding what that means that it's lost some of its connection with being a disciple. But we are disciples. So don't be a confused disciple. Understand what you are to do as a Christian. Follow Christ. The next type of defective disciple we're going to look at is is the counterfeit disciple. The counterfeit disciple. You're a counterfeit disciple if you've maybe responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ but done so for all the wrong reasons, which results in you not being converted. See, the issue is that God calls his people into discipleship. Uh, A a mentor, uh, a master craftsman gets to choose who his apprentices are. Jesus gets to choose who his disciples are. And the issue is not you choosing Jesus, but Jesus choosing you so that you come to faith and you're born again. But you have some people who come to Jesus for like all the wrong reasons. And we see this in, in, chap, in the book of Acts, if you want to turn there, Acts chapter 8. Beginning at verse 9. This is a story about Simon the magi- magician. But you could also apply this to like the, there were those disciples who followed Jesus simply because he fed them meals. He gave them free lunches and free dinners, right? The best bread they've ever had, the best fish they've ever tasted. Where did they, where did Jesus get this? The best wine even. So they followed Jesus for all the wrong reasons. But Simon the magician is, gives an example of this, beginning at verse 9. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astounding the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is is what is called the great power of God. Of course, it wasn't, but that's what they, they thought because of his magic tricks. And they were giving him attention because he, for had a long time, astounded them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed, as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly astounded. Sounds all good, right? Simon the, music, the, 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 the musician, the magician, right, was converted. That sounds good. Celebrate. But not all is as it appears to be. 
There are people who respond to the gospel. They look like they're responding positively, but there's not there's not the work of God in their lives. They're responding for all the wrong reasons. So now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them and they simply had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it's, a, it's an example in the early stages where the Holy Spirit didn't come upon believers immediately because God wanted the apostles to come authenticate the work of God there. So it required the apostles being there to see the actual work of God and to authenticate that. Because remember, Samaria was was a place where it was like the wretched place, the place the Jews wanted to avoid. The Samaritans, really? Like a few Samaritans believed when Jesus, you know, met the woman at the well in Samaria, but but not many. But here you have a real work of God where the Samaritans are being saved and brought into the kingdom of God. That would have been very hard for the Jews to believe. And so the Lord in his wisdom held back the receipt of the Holy Spirit until when the apostles could go verify that and they would see that the same thing. And I'll continue on reading. I want to give you that little background. That's not normal. Today, the Holy Spirit comes upon you immediately at your salvation. Now, verse 17, then they began laying hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit had been bestowed through the laying on of the apostles hands, he offered them money saying, give this authority to me as well. So that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon thought this was just a a magic trick that could be purchased. Which kind of reveals his heart is not right with God. And and Peter was there. And Peter, through the Holy Spirit, examined his heart. And we we see that in verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you suppose you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray earnestly to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of unrighteousness. But Simon answered and said, pray earnestly to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. It's last we hear of him. We don't know whether he really repented or not. But the issue here I wanted to point out is that Simon was a counterfeit disciple. He appeared at his disciple and even Philip, who was preaching the gospel, thought Simon was converted and baptized him. And it wasn't until his heart was exposed through the apostle Peter that he was shown to be a false counterfeit disciple. There are many people who are false disciples. So sometimes people outwardly adhere to the gospel. They seem like they're saved when in fact they are they are not. Um, Sometimes people, particularly who are gifted in music, can ride the wave of Christianity to popularity. But eventually their deceitfulness is exposed by their sinful lifestyle or their deconstruction of their faith. This is nothing more than rank apostasy. The fancy word is deconstruction, but it's just apostasy. And it shows that these people never believed to begin with. So there's the confused disciple, the counterfeit disciple. The next type of defective disciple I want to warn you about is the distracted disciple. You're a distracted disciple if you're so busy working or serving that you don't have time to actually 
follow Jesus. You don't have time to learn from Jesus. The distracted disciple. So an example of the distracted disciple is found in Luke chapter 10. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Particularly in verses 38 and 41. This is a story you may know very well involving Mary and Martha. Martha was having a very important guest. The most important guest she would ever have in her home. Can you imagine hosting Jesus? I don't want to come down too hard on Martha. If Jesus was coming to your house, you would clean, you would prepare, you would make the best meal, you would want everything to be just right. So her heart motive really was was good. Jesus didn't rebuke her in that sense. Let's read the text. Now, as they were traveling along, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was also seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted. Notice that word distracted. Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the preparations alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha. Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary for Mary has chosen the good part, which will be which will not be taken away from her. So what a contrast it is. The time for preparation was before Jesus got there. When Jesus got there, that wasn't time to prepare. Yes, things needed to be done, but if they weren't done, she was worried about things that Jesus could have taken care of like that. I mean, We know that he multiplied the bread and the fish. So when you have Jesus in your home, you just spend time with Jesus. You don't worry, you know, about anything else. And that's really what what Mary was doing, was just sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him. And it's what Martha should have been doing. And if, if Martha needed help completing some of the preparations so that they could have a meal or something like that, right? Then Jesus would help take care of that. You just when 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 the teacher's in the house, you just focus on the teacher, not on the preparations for the teacher. So there's many Christians like that today. They're busy serving. They're busy working, doing things that they should be doing. But they're just like Martha. They're bothered by a great many things. They're distracted with a great many things, but they've lost sight of the teacher. They've lost sight of Jesus, of spending time with Jesus, of, of taking time in his word, taking time to pray, talk to Jesus. Are you like that? Are you too busy? Things pressing in. You don't have time to pray. You don't have time to read the word of God. If you are, you're like this, like Martha. Yeah, distracted disciple. The next effective type of disciple I want to look at, and that's the self-serving disciple. You're a self-serving disciple if you're doing the work of disciple from selfish motives. And we see this in Matthew 16, Matthew 16, verses 24 and through 27. Jesus calls people into discipleship and calls them to deny themselves. Listen to Jesus' words. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay each one according to his deeds. Now, there are many self-serving disciples in America today who consider themselves Christians and attend church and do many of the things that, that Christians are to do, but only when it's convenient for them or when it suits their schedule or when they don't have something better to do. Oh, when the Browns aren't playing on Sunday morning, or if you fill in the blank what it is in your own life, you know that it's, it's hard. It's hard not to be self-serving. That's not an easy task. That requires the help of the Holy Spirit. Because naturally, we're all very selfish. We think about ourselves more than we think about anybody else. I mean, that's just true. That's true for all of us. But, but God calls us to be focused on primarily him, but also on serving one another. Uh, Philippians 2, just to give you a reminder of this, Philippians chapter 2 kind of spotlights this for us. Um, Philippians 2, beginning just verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion fulfill my joy, that you think the same way, maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Hear that. Regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. And he gives Jesus Christ as the example. Because Jesus Christ, the God-man, God, yet man, king of all creation, came and served. He washed his disciples' feet. He came to serve, not to be served. Mark 10.45 tells us. He gave his life as a ransom for many. So we are to follow Christ. Remember the disciple? It's enough the disciple that he becomes like his teacher. If Jesus came and served others when he deserved to be served, you certainly the pattern of your life certainly should be of serving others. So a disciple is called to serve others, not serve self. Um, then there's the uncommitted disciple. You're an uncommitted disciple if you refuse to make the sacrifices that are required of the disciples. That is, this is the person that thinks that they can be a Christian, a disciple of Christ, without making any of those sacrifices. Let me just read to you from Matthew 10, verse 37 says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. You can think of the rich young ruler in this case. The rich young ruler wanted to enter the kingdom of heaven. But when Jesus kind of identified uh, an idol of of riches and of wealth in his life. And he told the man, go sell all you have and follow me. The man went away sad because he knew that he couldn't do that. He loved his riches too much. Now, that's not a call for every Christian to sell everything you have and follow Christ. That was Jesus was identifying this man's the idol of his heart, which was riches. But he, he typifies the uncommitted disciple, someone who 
who thinks that they're a Christian, but they're not willing to make any of the sacrifices that Jesus calls them to make. Now, enough of the negative. Let's look at some positive examples. And I just want to emphasize the true disciple. We'll start with the true disciple. This isn't the perfect disciple because none of us are perfect. The only perfect disciple, the only perfect person is Jesus Christ. I mean, not a disciple, but he's the leader. But here, I just want to, want to point your attention to Acts chapter 16. It gives a very clear message about what the gospel is, about what it takes to actually become a disciple. You're a true disciple if you've been born again by God's power and grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And again, just typified through Acts chapter 16, beginning of verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Remember Paul and Silas? They're in jail with the prisoners. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the jailhouse were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfashioned. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your house. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his household. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he in his household. So to understand that important question, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So to be a true disciple, it means truly believing. And believing means just not not accepting facts in your head, but it implies trust. Right? The kind of trust you would need to have in a parachute. If you're on a plane and that plane was, was you knew that plane was going to crash if you stay on the plane, you're going to die. But you have a parachute. You put the parachute on, you strap it on, and you jump out of the plane, trusting in that parachute completely to save you. That's what believing upon Jesus Christ means. And, and if you do that, you will be saved. The Lord will transform you and you will be made a true disciple. So there's the true disciple. Then there's the faith, what I call the faithful disciple. The faithful disciple. You're a faithful disciple if you're seeking to understand and obey all that Jesus taught. And here I just want to take us to a main, uh, main text that we all have, most of us are familiar with, and that is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 to 20. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even at the end of the age. So the apostles were called to make disciples. That's the main command, make disciples. The disciples were called to make other disciples. That's the main thrust and mission of the church. The thrust and mission of the church today isn't to fight social justice. It's not to feed the poor. It's not to help your help our neighbors. All those things are things we should be doing as individuals. But the, the mission of the church is to make disciples. That means evangelizing them, baptizing those who believe, and teaching them to keep all that Jesus commanded. That means if the apostles and teachers that follow in the apostles' footsteps are teaching you what Jesus taught, that means your job as a disciple is to learn 
what Jesus taught and to obey what Jesus taught. So a faithful disciple is one who is learning what Jesus taught and seeking to apply it in your life. To the faithful disciple, we could add the properly working disciple. Here we'll turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And don't confuse the properly working uh, the properly working disciple with with the distracted disciple. So sometimes the reaction is we think of Martha and we think, oh, Martha's really busy, so I'll just not do nothing. No, that's not the response. Right? <laughs> All right? You are to be busy. Listen, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Beginning at verse 11. And he himself, that is Jesus, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Did you catch that? So, Pastors are called not to do the ministry. Pastors are called to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That means you are to be doing the bulk of the ministry. So part of preaching on Sundays is that equipping process, but that just starts it. That helps you to do the job that God has called you to do. Notice verse 16, that that the body of Christ, the local body of Christ is Hell is joined and held together by what every joint supplies. Every joint. That is every person. Every person in the body of Christ has something to contribute. And and look at, at the next statement or phrase, according to the properly measured working of each individual part. Each individual part is to has a role to, to play. God has ordained that. God has made you and gifted you to play that part. And if you are not doing that part, then the body of Christ is not being built up and matured as fully as we would be if you were doing that part. So you must be a a properly working disciple, doing what God has called you to do. And then there's the fruitful disciple. I know I'm hitting these fast, um, but it'll give you some things to think about. So the fruitful disciple we see in John 15. The Gospel of John, verse 15. And Jesus, in teaching his disciples, uses this this metaphor of the vine and the branches. Jesus says in verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he cleans it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Jesus is talking to his disciples. That clean there is referring to the fact that they are actually born again. And then he says in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit from itself unless it abides in the vine, 
so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. From apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Notice verse 8. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So the proof of your discipleship is not in what you say. It's the fruit of your life. And using this great analogy, I mean, if you if you have you all of you have seen uh, grapevines, you, you know what that's like, even if you don't have any in your in your yard, if you separate the branch from the vine, what happens to the branch? That dies up. There's no fruit, right? You don't you're not surprised when the branch that's separated from the vine doesn't have grapes on it. That's just common sense. And that's what Jesus is saying. In order for a branch to have delicious grapes, fruit on it, it's got to be connected to the vine. So as a disciple, you've got to be abiding in Christ. That is meaning truly saved, that your life is hidden in Christ, and his word is abiding in you, and then you'll bear much fruit. The Lord will bring that to pass. It's his doing. Now, so we've looked at looked at various types of disciples this morning, and, and we could add to this list a lot more. But I just want to say that all of us in this room have not arrived. There's nobody perfect. So even the negative negative examples, you could probably say, well, there's some of that that's true in my life. And and where you detected that. Just repent of that. Ask the Lord for forgiveness and ask the Lord to help you to turn away from those negative traits of a, of a disciple. And where there are those positive examples of a discipleship, seek uh, to, to model those. Seek to put those into practice. To be fruitful, to be properly working, to be faithful, to be true. So just use these things to help examine your life to answer the question, what type of disciple are you? And, and maybe there are some in this room who are saying, well, I'm not a disciple at all. You haven't spoken to me. Well, you're right, I haven't. But I, but I just want to say that, that why would anybody want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Like, why would you want to do this? There are some that say, if you follow Christ, you get your best life now. But you already know that that's not true. A lot of your problems start when you become a Christian because people start harassing you for your beliefs. Why would anybody want to follow Jesus Christ? Just use the apostles' words. You follow Jesus Christ because you know he has the words of eternal life. He forgives sins. He grants eternal life. And if you recognize that you're a sinner before God, and if you die today, you're going to be judged by him eternally. There's only one way to have that that the guilt of that sin removed. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. If you believe in him, he will forgive your sins and grant you eternal life. That's the why. We follow Christ because he's the life giver. And there's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. You can't save yourself. You can deny God exists, but that doesn't remove the fact that he does exist. You can deny that you're going to be held accountable by God. That doesn't, that doesn't change the fact that you will be held accountable to him. 
If you say that you're not going to be held accountable by God or that he doesn't exist, you're being as foolish as Peter was in correcting Jesus, saying, ah, no, Jesus, I'm not going to fall away from you. Please do not be that foolish. Peter was wrong. And you're wrong. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that he might save you and make you his disciple. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you for your grace and love and mercy. We thank you that you have called us into discipleship, that you are the good disciple maker, that you make disciples. Ultimately, you are the shepherd and we are the sheep. Lord, we just thank you for your work in our lives and thank you for the work um, that you've done in the lives of these uh, five people that will give testimony to your grace in their lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.